If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find Judges 13 on page 247. I'm glad you're here today. You look great. You smell great. You're smiling pretty. You sang loud. I'm really proud of you. Uh, it's a great morning to be in church. And let me tell you why it is very important for you to know the book of Judges. Uh, on Friday, I'm scrolling through some headlines. I saw a headline, a link to an article, and, and the headline said this. Uh, it said, uh, study disproves Bible's suggestion that ancient Canaanites were wiped out. Again, the headline is, study disproves Bible's suggestion that ancient Canaanites were wiped out. It's by a guy named Chris Graham who writes for UK news source called The Telegraph. So, uh, the story was this, that some genetic researchers wanted to trace the, the sort of DNA history of Lebanese people. And so, they took DNA samples from ancient sources from that part of the world, and they took some DNA sources from modern sources in that part of the world, and they ran the DNA, and then they found that there was a line of continuity between those Two people, the ancient peoples and the modern peoples. And so then their conclusion, the scientist's conclusion, was, uh, was modern-day Lebanese people have their roots in ancient Canaanites. That was the term they used. So that was the scientist's conclusion. But then Chris Graham of The Telegraph, he put an anti-Bible spin on that. And he said, in the book of Deuteronomy, God told Israel you're supposed to wipe out all of these Canaanites. But the fact that modern-day Lebanese people come from ancient Lebanese people tells us that obviously the Bible is not true. But you're a student of the book of Judges. And you, you don't have secret information. You just know Judges 101. And chapter 1 tells us, yeah, God gave the command but ancient Israel did not obey it, right? So, Mr. Chris Graham, spreading a little fake news. Uh, he can <laughs> go back to his bangers and mash and maybe read after Deuteronomy and see the rest of the story. And uh, it's going to be... So, it's good for you. This, is, this was just Friday, a modern article with this type of uh, just blatant misinformation. So, it's good for you that you know the book of Judges and... Uh, there you go. All right. Good deal. All right. Judges chapter 13 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. So imagine this scenario with me. My daughters come to me and they ask me, Dad, what is love like? Now, they would never ask me that in a thousand years. But just imagine with me they did. Dad, what is love like? And I have a couple of options as to how I might answer that question. Uh, I could give a pretty formal an academic answer. I could say, well, girls, you see, love as we know it is really a societal construct with a scientific explanation. One day, you'll meet a boy who stands out from all the rest. Due to our evolutionary history, you're probably going to be instinctively drawn to the one you think would be the best hunter. You will experience a surge in dopamine levels, which will cause you to experience euphoria, around them. A neurotrophin called nerve growth factor increases your emotional dependency on this person. And lastly, your serotonin levels will drop, which increases your desire for the other person. And that's what love's like. 
Or I, I could give a different type of answer. I could say this. I, I remember the day your mom and I got married, and I stood at the front of the church next to the minister, and I saw the back doors open up, and your mom walked in next to her dad, just the most beautiful I had ever seen her. And I felt like my heart was going to explode out of my chest that day because I thought, I will never love this woman more than I love her right now. This is incredible. And then just a couple of weeks ago, we were watching TV together, and mom was laying on the couch, and I was sitting in the floor next to her, and she was kind of scratching my head, half falling asleep, half watching TV. And I thought to myself again, I could never love this woman more than I do right now. 20 years of history together, and our simple moments are the most sacred moments. And that's kind of what love is like. And my girls would say, Ugh, you're so gross. <laughs> it's the story, it's the narrative that communicates love, Right? Great romantic movies or great works of romantic literature or our love songs, they, they don't give cold, scientific, heartless explanations of what love is. They tell a story, and the story helps us understand what this is like. It's interesting to me that in our pursuit of God, our desire to understand who He is and what He's like, what happens so often is you and I want cold, heartless, scientific bullet points, definitions, binary answers. We want our theologies systematized. We want everything in order so that we can just rattle these things off and know them just like they, they should be. But that's not what God gives us. When God reveals himself to us, you know what he gives us? He gives us a story. He gives us a narrative. He gives us Judges 13. Now, to be sure, there's places in Scripture that speak directly to the character of God. God is love. That's pretty direct. But in Judges 13, we have a story. We get to experience that story through the eyes of the participants. And at the conclusion of that story, we're left with this one inescapable conclusion. Our God is more than wonderful. So let me bring you up to speed on where we are in the book of Judges, just in case you haven't been with us for a while. Maybe you've been like to Ireland or Montana or something, or maybe you have uh, just been out of state. Here's where we've been. We get to the book of Judges, and what's supposed to happen is this. God's people have entered the promised land. They've begun to take possession of it by conquest, and that's supposed to continue. They're supposed to continue to rid the land of its original inhabitants and establish themselves as the possessors of the land. But they don't do that. Rather than shock and awe, they enslave the original, original inhabitants and then they cozy up with those original people and then they marry those original people and then they begin to worship their false gods. Israel, whom God brought out of Egypt, Israel, whom God has delivered, Israel, whom God has placed in the promised land, turns their back on God and worships all these make-believe gods from these uh, enemy nations. And so as a result, what we find as we study the book of Judges is that Israel is in this violent downward spiral. There's this similar cycle that happens. Israel turns their back on God God hands Israel over to an enemy nation for some time. 
After a while, Israel has a moment of clarity, and they cry out to God for help. God relents. He comes to work on their behalf, and he gives them a military leader. This military leader is called a judge. So that's where the book gets his name. The military leader then leads God's people against the enemy, delivers them from the enemy, and as long as that military leader is alive, as long as the judge is alive, God's people walk in covenant faithfulness with the Lord. But as soon as they have that dude's funeral, or dudette's funeral, they lose their ever-loving minds, and they go right back to their idol-chasing ways. And if you've been with us a little bit through this study, you know that step by step, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So Judges 13 starts the last cycle, the last story of the great judge, Samson. Samson gets four chapters of attention in the book of Judges. And chapter 13 is his birth story. It's a nativity scene. It's Christmas in July in Judges chapter 13. And so we're going to start this morning Samson's story with this incredible look at the way he gets onto this planet. And Judges 13, for me, is like an oasis in the middle of a whole mess of a story. It's, it's, a, it's an oasis with some warts, but it's still an oasis nonetheless compared to where we've been, the things we've read, the things we've studied in our time in Judges. And so if we study Judges chapter 13 right, we're going to get to the end of it, and you and I are going to see clearly how wonderful God is and the profound difference that makes for us. If you're a follower of His, Judges 13 should fill you with joy. And if you are someone who is seeking, Judges 13 extends an invitation. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Judges chapter 13. Here we go. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for how long? Forty years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, a man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God, very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth until the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord. O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field, but her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, he's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, are you the one who talked to my wife? I am, he said. 
So Manoah asked him, when your words are fulfilled, what is it to be, or excuse me, what is to be the rule for the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, your wife must do all that I've told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink, nor eat anything unclean. She must do everything I have commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, we would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize that it was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, What is your name so that we may honor you when your word comes true? He replied, Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Then Manoah took a young goat together with the grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. But his wife answered, If the Lord had meant to kill us, He would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Mahana, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtel. All right. Judges 13 gives us an incredible portrait of a wonderful God if you just had Judges 13 to feast on today, what would it teach you about the character of our wonderful God? Let me show you very quickly five characteristics of our God who is more than wonderful from Judges chapter 13. So our God who is more than wonderful, what is He like? First of all, in this story, we are told that He is the God of grace. He is the God of grace from verses 1 through 5. So our story opens with a familiar refrain, right? Look at verse 1. We've heard this before. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now that's a familiar refrain, but as a good student of the book of Judges, what you want to do as you read through is compare the details you're reading to details that came before. Although it may seem like a familiar formula, there's something different this time around. In fact, there's something missing from this beginning part of the story. Do you know what's missing from the part, this part of the story? Well, what we have that's familiar is that Israel once again does evil in the eyes of the Lord. We know that. That God hands them over. That he hands them over to an enemy nation called the Philistines. They're with the Philistines for 40 years. Those things seem familiar, but the one thing that's missing here Israel does not cry out for help. Israel does not have a moment of clarity. They do not realize the depths of their sin and ask God for help. 
they're so beaten down after 40 years under Philistine rule that they don't even realize or remember that there's a better way. And in fact, it, it's so bad that in chapter 15, I don't want to ruin it before we get there, but in chapter 15, Israel will argue against their very own deliverance. This is just the way it's supposed to be, Samson. Israel is crushed and they do not turn to the Lord. They do not repent. They do not stop worshiping false idols. There's no spiritual revival, no prayer meeting, no great awakening. And yet God raises up a deliverer. God puts deliverance in motion for these people who do not ask for it. And what can that be other than radical grace? I would call it radical grace, but in fact, it's just grace. All grace is radical grace when a holy God acts on behalf of sin-bent people. What happens so often when you and I think about grace, maybe compared between us and the Israelites, is we might think, well, okay, yeah, I, I get grace because I'm not as bad as the Israelites. God's grace is favor to undeserving sinners, but surely Israel was worse off than me. If, if I was in Israel at this time, I, I wouldn't be like this. The fact of the matter is you and I are far worse off than Israel ever was. Here's why. You know about Christmas, and you know about Easter, and we still have hard hearts. We have more information than the Israelites ever dreamed of having. We have all the stories that they experienced. We know the testimony of God's character firsthand there. And we know everything that followed. We know how the story ends. And still, you and I, we have a tough time following, obeying, listening, surrendering, trusting. We know that Jesus came to us. We know that he died for us. We know that he rose again. Still, we have hard hearts. And although we have hard hearts, still, Jesus came and Jesus died and Jesus rose again. It's grace that saves us. From the outset of this story, the song that the last song we just sang, Grace Greater Than All Our Sin, it's, it's exemplified here at the beginning of Judges chapter 13. Not one person says, Lord, save us, and yet God acts on their behalf. He's a wonderful God who gives you grace in the face of all of your sin. That's one thing that makes him wonderful. There's a second thing that makes him wonderful in this story. One, he's the God who gives you grace. Second, he is the God who knows you. Verses 2 through 7, he's the God who knows you. So uh, for me, one of the most positive aspects of the book of Judges is, in general, its positive portrayal of women in the story. Women play a central role, and they are often ahead of their male counterparts in terms of their understanding of the situation, their trust in God, uh, their courage. Pretty much Judges is just like real life in that way. Uh, so in chapter 13, we're introduced to Manoah's wife. Now, do you remember her name without looking? No. And there's a reason you don't remember it. You weren't told it. She's just Manoah's wife. She's just Samson's mom. She's a nameless nobody. We, we have no clue who this woman is. And yet the angel of the Lord comes to her. Look at what the angel says to her starting in verse 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, 
you are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth. And he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah's wife and gives her this good news. You're going to have a son. And this son is going to begin the deliverance of Israel. He doesn't complete it. He begins it. And then here are some instructions for you to follow. So the instructions are that this child is to live his life according to a Nazarite vow. And what's more, Manoah's wife, while she carries the child, is also supposed to live her life according to this Nazarite vow. What is a Nazarite vow? Numbers chapter 6 is where this is spelled out in detail for us. A Nazarite vow is this. It would be if you wanted to do some special work or you had some special project for the Lord and you would set aside a certain period of time to keep yourself ceremonially clean. And so you would follow certain rules, including no alcohol, no vine products, no touching or proximity to a dead body, don't cut your hair, and you're going to remain ceremonially pure for the duration of this work or this project, whatever it is. It's meant to be short term. A Nazarite vow is not a long endeavor unless your name's Samson. You see, Samson's mom will live, as, live out this Nazarite vow for roughly 40 weeks, but Samson is to be a Nazarite from his birth. And what's the reason for Samson's Nazarite lifestyle? Look at the end of verse 5. It says, he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. This is his God-appointed work. Now, imagine with me, you are the one chosen by God to pick a woman who will carry this baby and give birth to this baby who will deliver Israel. What kind of woman are you going to look for to do this? You might think to yourself, you know what, I, I need a woman of financial means. That way the child can afford to have food and a comfortable life. Uh, you might want a woman of influence so that her child can be well positioned in society, know all the power players and, and the ins and outs of sort of this Israelite hierarchy of life. Uh, you might want a woman who's pious, who's somewhat religious. That way her faith will be exemplary for her son who's supposed to carry out this grand task. But the angel of the Lord came to Manoah's wife, who is none of that, plus she's infertile. We might assume that she's as much an idolater as the rest of Israel. She's not exceptionally wealthy or influential or important. She is nameless she is infertile but she is the one god has chosen for this wonderful task why well you don't know her but god knows her you don't know her name but god knows her name and he knows her condition and he knows her fears and her doubts and he knows the work that he has for this special woman to do and god knows your name and you are no stranger to him and he knew your name long before your parents knew your name. And he has prepared good works for you far in advance that are not a mistake. You might not put yourself on anyone else's team, but God knows you. 
and your fears and your doubts and your conditions, and he has called you to be his. He's got work for you to do. How incredible is this God that he's not just after the strongest, the fastest, the biggest, the best, but he'll take people like us, hurting, broken, not sure of ourselves, He's going to take the humble person and he's going to exalt them. And he's going to take the weak person and give them strength. God uses people like this because he knows us. How wonderful is this God who says, let there be, and it is, and he knows you by name. It's an amazing God we serve. He's a God of grace. He's the God that knows you. Third characteristic of this wonderful God, he is the God who hears you. Verses 8 through 11, he's the God who hears you. So the angel of the Lord delivers the news to Manoah's wife. She then delivers the news to her husband. And then Manoah's next step is to pray. So look at what happens starting in verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord. O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us Come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. But her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, He's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said, Are you the one who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So the news gets delivered to Manoah. Manoah immediately turns in prayer to God. And we've got this very important detail we might just gloss over in verse 9. Look at that first line of verse 9. God heard Manoah. So this is another place where you and I might yawn with familiarity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God hears Manoah's prayer. I mean, isn't that the way prayer is supposed to work? (laughs) I mean, big deal. That's hardly worth a pause. But it's no small thing that God would hear Manoah and answer Manoah. And it's no small thing that God would hear us and answer us. It's amazing how we take for granted the things that are most simple and yet most profound. So my family and I, we've, we've had these experiences in Uganda we love that country and love the people of the country. And uh, the number one killer in Uganda, there are many threats to life, but the number one killer is malaria, mosquitoes. And so when you go on a short-term trip to Uganda, you have to take malaria pills. That's just, that's a no-brainer. But then when you sleep at night, every place where you're going to sleep has a mosquito net over the bed. So if you're not familiar with this, it's an actual net, very fine micro-mesh net. Uh, During the daytime, it's folded up and it's stored out of the way. But then at night, you unravel it and you drape it over the entirety of your bed. It doesn't just hang on your face. It's over the entire bed. And the thought is that it's supposed to keep mosquitoes out so you can sleep well without getting eaten up. But mosquitoes are crafty. A couple of things wrong with the old mosquito net system. One is uh, oftentimes mosquitoes, they find the tiniest holes, the littlest gaps, and they'll squeeze in there, and then you're laying in bed trying to sleep, and you'll hear, it's the worst, the absolute, I mean, you know what it's like when a fly is buzzing your head at night, makes you crazy. Here's these mosquitoes. But another thing that makes it bad is the mosquito nets don't always have a bed frame to be propped up on. 
So oftentimes that net is hanging down by your face. And still the mosquitoes are right outside the net. And you just feel like they're all over you. It's horrible. Now, none of you laid in your bed last night and prayed, Lord, thank you that I do not have to sleep with a mosquito net. Because it's just, it's no big whoop. You just lay in bed and, 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 and you're out. That's it. You don't think about it. You just do it. That's just the way it is. But I'm telling you, every night you ought to lay in your bed and say, thank you, God, that I don't have to sleep under a mosquito net for a thousand reasons, the, the least of all being my own personal discomfort. We take the littlest things for granted. Water from the tap, air conditioning, cars. We take all these simple, common things for granted all the time, which says something about us and may help inform our understanding of prayer as well. Just because we think prayer is commonplace and that's the way it's supposed to work, God should hear and then God should answer, doesn't mean it's any less amazing. It is unbelievable that you and I, finite specks of dust on this little blue marble, get the ear of the infinite, glorious, majestic God and that he would see fit to answer us and to reply. So here's where you might push back and, and you'd say, you know, it's, it's nice that he hears my prayers. But Cody, it'd be nicer if he would answer my prayer. God answers every prayer. Our problem is we expect every prayer to be answered according to our prescription. So when you and I say, God isn't answering my prayers. What we really mean is God isn't granting my wishes. He's not a genie. He's not subservient to me to do what I tell him to do when I pray with some special formula or, or I bring some sort of evidence to the table that he should abide by. Our biggest misconception about prayer is that it's our way to get God to do what we want. But the truth is prayer is where God gets us to trust what he wants. Prayer bends us more than it bends God. And Manoah's prayer, I think, is honorable. It's not an order for God to follow. It's a request for more information. God, how are we to raise this boy? Send your messenger again so that we can know what you want for us to do. It's an amazing thing that the God of creation hears our prayers and answers our prayers with his gracious yeses and his merciful noes. It's no small thing that God hears our prayers. So he's the God of grace. He's the God that knows you. He's the God that hears you fourth characteristic of this wonderful God. He's the God who guides you. Verses 12 through 14. He's the God who guides you. There's a little bit of humor here in the story in a couple of places, at least as I read it, there is. One of those places is in Manoah's exchange with the angel of the Lord. So look at verse 12. The angel is shown back up, shows up to Manoah's wife. She runs and gets Manoah. He comes back out of breath, verse 12, uh, he says to the angel of the Lord, when your words are fulfilled, what is to be the rule for the boy's life and work? The angel of the Lord answered, 
Your wife must do all I have told her. And then he goes into detail again regarding those things that he's already told her. In, in other words, the angel just tells Manoah, I've got no new information for you. Everything your wife told you is exactly what needs to happen. That's it. This is now the third time in the story we've heard the details regarding how the child is to be raised. The first time, it's from the angel to Manoah's wife. The second time, it's from Manoah's wife to Manoah. The third time, it's from the angel to Manoah. Who do you think is having a hard time understanding what all is going on here in the story? Yeah, old Manoah. Three times these instructions are given. How important do you think it is that Manoah and his wife obey these instructions? It's important times three. God is going to rescue Israel. He's already set that deliverance in motion. And now he gives this guidance, these instructions, to Manoah and his wife. Here in Judges 13, we find the familiar pattern of the gospel. The pattern is this. First, God acts in grace for the deliverance of his people. Second, God gives instructions for how his delivered people are to live in a relationship with him. The instructions don't produce the salvation. The instructions follow the salvation. This is what happened in the book of Exodus. God delivers Israel by grace out of bondage in Egypt. Then they get to Mount Sinai and he gives them his word. Deliverance comes before the demand. Last week we took a breather and studied the Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. The same gospel pattern is there as well. At the end of chapter 4, Jesus heals every disease that's brought to him. Chapter 5, he sits down and gives instructions. The miracles on the mount precede the sermon on the mount. This is the gospel pattern throughout Scripture. And here it is again in Judges chapter 13. Deliverance is always followed by demand. Rescue is always followed by requirement. God rescues us from death and destruction. And then he tells us how to live an abundant life. So God has expectations for us. What our culture wants is a God who just affirms our life choices. And make no mistake, there is affirmation when God assesses your life. And that affirmation is this. You are by nature an object of wrath. You are a desperate sinner. And you are broken in every way a human being can be broken. You need rescue that can come only from God. That's God's affirmation of our state of affairs. And so God acts for your rescue. Christ dies on the cross in your place for your sin. He raises from the dead. And then there are expectations for those who belong to him. What are those expectations? He expects you to love him supremely. He expects you to love your neighbor as yourself. He expects husbands to be Christ-like in their self-sacrifice for their wives. And he expects wives to be Christ-like in their submission to their husbands. He expects you to not be greedy, but to be generous. And he expects you to forgive and to show mercy and to pray for your enemies and to control your tongue and to turn your cheek. He expects you to put the needs of others before yourself. 
He expects you to have the mind of Christ. It's a bad lifeguard who rescues you from a rip current only to send you back out into it. It is a good God who rescues you from death and then tells you how to walk in life. Our wonderful God expects you to live abundant life in the victory won by Christ at the cross. So here's our wonderful God, a God of grace, a God who knows you, a God who hears you, a God who guides you. Finally, he is the God who delivers you. Verses 15 through 24, all this begins to unfold. He's the God who delivers you. The rest of his story is really Manoah at his weirdest. Remember, he does not yet fully understand who this mysterious messenger is. Now, Mrs. Manoah has an idea. When she first told the story to her husband, she said, it it seems like an angel from God. I, I didn't ask where he's from. I didn't ask his name. It feels inappropriate for someone mortal to ask those questions of some, someone with this sort of um, personality. And so the, the angel of the Lord shows back up. Manoah is thinking this is just some guy. So he says, hey, why don't you stay for dinner? And the angel of the Lord declines and instead tells Manoah, hey, mate, why don't you make a burnt offering to Yahweh instead? Now remember... Manoah's wife did not ask the angel's name, but what does Manoah do in verse 17? What is your name so that we may honor you when your word comes true? That tricky, Manoah. Up to things. Look at the angel's answer in verse 18. Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Now, if you have a Bible translation different from the NIV, your verse 18 looks a little different, doesn't it? It doesn't say, my name is beyond understanding. It says what? My name is wonderful. Now, if you've got King James, it says, my name is secret. But if you've got ESV, my name is wonderful. If you've got a New Living Translation, it says, my name is beyond wonderful. So which one is right? I don't know. I'm not an Old Testament scholar, so I'm going to take them and mash them together, and I'm going to say this. All those translations help us understand that which we cannot rightly understand. The name of this representative of God is a mystery that is more than wonderful to the hearers. So Manoah then begins to light up the altar. Something really strange happens. They didn't expect it. The messenger steps into the fire and then ascends to heaven. And look at how Manoah responds in verse 22. It should have been in all caps. We are doomed to die. We have seen God. He just spazzes out entirely. But here's his wife, again, talking him down with sound logic. She says, look, if the Lord had wanted us dead, we'd already be dead. He wouldn't have accepted our offering. He wouldn't have given us these words. From the end of verse 23... To the beginning of verse 24, 40 weeks elapses, give or take a little bit. Verse 24, the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. That's the point of this whole story. This this birth, this boy, 
this deliverer in utero. This is the point of the entire story. Now, there's something very different about Samson compared to other judges. Again, as a student of this book, you're going to read about Samson and you're going to compare him to his predecessors in this book. And one of the great differences between Samson and the other judges is this. The other judges were selected. Samson was homegrown. And why do you think that might be important? I think God wants us to see here that the deliverance of his people is not always just a knee-jerk reaction. But he is the God who plans deliverance. He's the God that sets salvation in motion long before anyone else knows the details or even knows it's required. And this is God's pattern of things. He is the God who is bent on not just some micro-deliverance in the book of Judges, but the grand deliverance of His people from the powers of hell and the schemes of sin. And so when we read about this birth story, This nativity scene in which a deliverer comes to God's people, we can't help but be excited about the one who is greater than Samson, who will bring that ultimate deliverance once and for all, for all those who trust in that name. A deliverer without blemish, a deliverer who is not broken in sin, a deliverer who conquers sin once and for all through his death and resurrection. So it seems right to me to go from Judges 13 to Luke chapter 2, and to join with the heavenly hosts who sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to men on whom his favor rests. This is a God who has deliverance planned and taken care of for you already. So if you just sat down with Judges 13, you're, you're going to feast on the character of God. He's a God of grace. He's the God who knows you. He's the God who hears you. He's the God who guides you. He's the God who delivers you. What do you call a God like that? What do you call a God of such indescribable grace and compassion? If I could sum it all up in one phrase, I would call him this more than wonderful. Beyond our adjectives, not enough superlatives to describe this kind of God. And that ought to be such joy for the believer, such strength on your weak day, such boldness in the face of every trial you face to know this God is your God. And it's an invitation to the seeker. The invitation is this, look at this God who's full of grace for you and knows you and calls you and is ready to deliver you if you would trust in Him. How do we respond to a God that wonderful? Here's how we respond. Yes. We respond with our yes. Not more religion. We respond with our lives. So that's the call of Judges 13 to all of us today. Would you say yes to the God who has already said yes to you? Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word to us. Grateful that in the middle of a book like Judges, we get this incredible glimpse at your 
your character that is more than wonderful. I'm grateful that we can be brought to you through the beauty of Christ, the glory of the cross in his resurrection. We can be brought to you by these incredible descriptions of your amazing character. And so, Father, uh, make your call clear this morning to my friends in here that are not yet your followers who have tried to push grace aside and to be religious of their own accord, who have tried to earn what cannot be earned. Father, let them rest in your wonderful, marvelous grace. For my brothers and sisters in the faith, Father, lift our hearts, our spirits, our eyes as we walk with you, our wonderful God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.